Today's sermon is going to be from Philippians 2, 9 to 11, and I'll be reading verses 1 all the way through 13 for us. Um, So if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there with me. Uh, But if you don't, you can follow along on the screen right behind me here. Hear the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. All right. My name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church, so glad that you're here. He is risen. Amen. Let me go to the Lord in prayer in preparation for the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for this time together. Uh, what a gift it is to have your word, and in particular, this passage, Lord, that's so clear to us and so beautiful. God, would you attend to us this morning and direct us towards the gaze of the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. As we think about the resurrection of Christ, we see in that resurrection something of Christ in that he gives us, as I will uh, posit this morning, he gives us the good life. Christ does in his resurrection, triumphing over the grave, defeating everything that's keeping us back. But there's another version of the good life that is sometimes mentioned. Uh, Some of you uh, that are golf fans, you may be familiar with the Augusta National Golf Tournament that happened a couple weeks ago. Well, I read a story about that tournament this past week by a guy by the name of Paul Doherty. And he says, the title of his article is, Welcome to Augusta National and the Good Life. And this is what he says. He says, at the Masters, they have the pace of the men's room's lines down to a science. Standing, sir, asked the green-garbed gentleman, lording over the entrance to the green bathroom building behind the sixth green. Sure am, I say. The fellow directs me to an open urinal, one of 12 on each wall, six down on the right, because the building has both an ingress and egress. There is no troublesome traffic jam at the doorway. A daunting cue that snakes 25 yards from the entrance moves with the pace and efficiency of ants at a picnic. Beer drinkers are so grateful they cry. This is the master's. So is this. The new press mansion is embarrassingly opulent. It's Tara with Wi-Fi. Rhett comes in. He gets his shoes shine and a finger of Kentucky's finest. I might have mentioned the shower area, the oriental rugs, and the upstairs lobby, and the marbled country club men's room. 
Lotion, anyone? Maybe some mouthwash? Stepford politeness infuses the grounds. They're so nice, they make me nervous. As I type this, a young lady in a green coat happens by. She runs a cloth across the wooden ledge in front of my workspace and slides my nameplate a quarter inch so it rests perfectly in its holder. This is the truth. He goes on and says, Almost every year the tournament gets blasted at least once with a mammoth rain, and in the past that resulted in the walkways becoming a quagmire when it was really bad. A stench arose from whatever they put on the grass to keep it mega green. But not this year. They applied some sort of grass and tiny green pebble absorbent to the paths. Now it's like walking in the Garden of Eden. Maybe it is the Garden of Eden. At various spots around the course, you can hear a ghostly subterranean rumble. That's the sub-air system sucking water from the surface and sending it somewhere. On Saturday, even the weather came under Augusta National's purview. It was sunny and calm. A few audacious clouds showed themselves, though. Someone fix that, please. Thank you. And then he asks, what if the country ran with the efficiency of Augusta National? Now, did you notice the crux of the author's argument there? You could heard it right there in that sentence. One word used two times, the word efficiency. It comes down to a single word used twice there, efficiency. And efficiency is defined as an accomplishment of or an ability to accomplish a job with minimum expenditure of time or effort. Paul Doherty, friends, sees the good life as entertainment, the masters, with efficiency. So it's a good synopsis of our cultural moment, isn't it? Try and think about the most recent inventions. Most all of them are doing the same thing. Personal entertainment by efficiency. For those of you that are fans of the TV show Shark Tank, you can think about this. Think back to the inventions that are used in that show. Most of them are businesses owners that have created things to make, e- make, make things easier for people, which will in turn make them happier, which will be the impetus to buy their product. And so I wonder if this is your version of the good life. Personal entertainment by efficiency. Like Paul Doherty, everything and everyone exists to serve your needs, provides you with a cup of tea, with a smile. When you're driving, everybody gets out of your way, right? You have a big spacious home with the most recent technological gadgets, like one of those vacuums that, you know, vacuums the floor without you having to do anything. Equipped with an Alexa, yes, Alexa, you can ask her questions from anywhere in the house, and she will give you answers with ease. A 70-inch TV screen equipped with both Hulu and Netflix, as well as an internet connection, maybe a couch sitting in front of it with a refrigerator on the side of it so you don't have to get up and stay in front of your screen and watch the movie. Maybe enough money in the bank and flexibility at your job to go just about anywhere you please, because the job pays a lot of money and accomplishes something that you think is accomplishing something in the world, making you feel meaningful about your work. But it also is a job that doesn't ask you to spend too much time at the office. Blue Blue Apron is delivered to your house daily with ingredients and directions to give you all these amazing meals and tells you how to do them all. And of course, just enough friends that don't require too much effort from you, but they love your company and they love being around you. Is this the good life? All the things that you love with as little cost to you as possible. Personal entertainment by efficiency. Well, friends, if it is, you're going to hate Christianity. You're going to be constantly frustrated with the teachings of Christ. 
You'll be very frustrated because as you just heard read in that passage, they understand, Christ understands that the good life is not personal entertainment by efficiency. It's entirely the opposite. It's corporate joy by inefficiency. You just heard the Apostle Paul say to complete his joy, chapter 2, verse 2, by thinking of others' interests as well as your own. You also hear the example in Christ who himself had the good life in heaven, as it were, and he gave it all up to take on flesh and die a horrendous death. And it was only after that excruciating loss that everlasting joy and exaltation came. So corporate joy by inefficiency or personal entertainment by efficiency. Which one is the good life? Which one? Well, friend, maybe no one has ever told you this before, but there's a reason why Jesus Christ changed the world. Because his life pictures the life that is truly human. The way that life was supposed to be and one day will be in the new heavens and new earth. There's something about the life of Christ that pictures the true good life. And here's Christ's secret. You can see it right there in verse 11. He lived not for his own glory, but for the glory of his heavenly Father. Or in a phrase, Christ's life was marked by humility for the sake of unity in the glory of God. That is what the good life is. Take a look. We're going to be studying this in Philippians. We've been looking at this uh, book in Philippians. If you're new to us, uh, we're about halfway through this book. We've been looking at it for a couple months. The book of Philippians is a little letter that was written by the Apostle Paul in around about 60 A.D., which is about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, It is the first gospel-believing church on European soil. And the purpose for writing this letter was to address what seemed to be some small seeds of possible disunity that may be present in the church. And those seeds of disunity were apparently due to some attitude problems that were in the church. You can see there in verse 5, when Paul says to have this mind, we could also read that to say have this attitude. So in what is this attitude Paul wants the church to have? Well, an attitude or a mind of humility. Not the mind of arrogance, not the mind of self-righteousness, not the mind of conceit, humility. And Paul goes on to describe humility there in verses 3 to 4. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, thinking of others as more significant than yourselves. Not looking only to your own interests, but also looking to the interests of others. And then he goes on to give this preeminent example of Christ in verse 6 to 8. The gospel of Jesus Christ, where in verse 6 to 8, Christ, who was fully God, emptied himself into the fullness of humanity, taking on the form of a servant. He died for the forgiveness of sins to the glory of His heavenly Father. And this attitude, says Paul, is the completion of joy. And friends, this is the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity. Humility for the sake of unity that leads to the glory of God. This is the way that we were made to live and be satisfied. And so let's take a look at those three verses, 9, 10, and 11, in order to understand more deeply, what is the result of humility? And here's the result. Are you ready? In a phrase. Title of the sermon this morning, really simple. You can imagine how much time it took for me to come up with this title. The exaltation of Christ. All right? That's what it is. There's the result of humility. True humility's result is the exaltation of Christ, as we see there in verses 9 to 11. 
Again, note there in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, the same love. And then he says in verse 5, again, have this mind which is yours. He goes on to describe the gospel. And here in our text is the result of the gospel. And the result of the gospel is the exaltation of Christ and the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to notice, if you look at that closely, did you notice that Christ is Lord and the glory of the Father are not in competition? Which picture to us the teaching of the Trinity, what Christians have always believed. But notice this exaltation came only through the mud and the mire and the horror of the cross. And friends, that's what love is. That's what love does. And this is the pattern for our lives as Christians. If we are going to live as bright lights that point people to the real good life. We go low. All the while knowing a day is coming when we will go up. Only to then be bowed down in satisfaction as we worship the risen Christ. Take a look there, verse 11, in verse 9 actually. You'll notice there's the word therefore. Now you'll note that word therefore is different than the other therefores that we're tend to, we, use, we are used to seeing in, in the Bible. So that therefore there is uh, what we're normally used to seeing is when we see the word therefore, we're seeing how we need to respond to the gospel. That's what normally is happening. But here in this passage, we see that therefore is therefore because we're finding here God the Father's response to the gospel. You'll notice the therefore that we're used to is down there in verse 12. But right here in verse 9, this is illustrating God the Father's response to the gospel. So this, therefore, is addressing God the Father's response to the gospel. And as a result of the Christ's humiliation that we just read about in verse 6 to 8, His obedience on the cross, Christ was raised to everlasting glory in heaven. There's God the Father's response. You can see that represented there again in verse 9 when it says, Therefore God, there's the answer, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And what's that name? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Christ humbled Himself by emptying Himself into humanity. He became a servant. He obeyed the Father to the point of death on a cross. And as a result, the Father then exalted His now incarnated Son. Christ was high. He went low. Therefore, the Father raised the incarnated Son high again. Maybe another way of asking this or noting what's going on in the passage. What was the second person of the Trinity known as before the Incarnation? Well, we don't know exactly other than the fact that he was there and he existed. But one thing is for sure, he wasn't known as Jesus. He wasn't known as Jesus. We can be sure of that. Jesus is the name that is given to the second person of the Trinity when he incarnated himself as the son of Mary. Jesus is the name, the character that is represented as fully obedient to the point of death on a cross, bringing salvation to sinners that repent and believe on him. And so, don't, don't, don't miss this, so the addition of humanity without the subtraction of deity resulted in a name, in a character, as represented by the name Jesus. And the name Jesus, if someone were to ask you at lunch today, what does Jesus mean? Here's your answer. It means Savior. Savior. Jesus means Savior. And it is only by that name, I want to emphasize that, it is only by that name that is above every name that people can be saved from sin. It is the only name that people can be saved from sin. That's the point that Paul, Paul, uh, Peter makes in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. 
when he says there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, that would make sense that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Because if there was another way to salvation, then why would the Father have wasted His Son and given Him up to such a horrible death? If there was another way to salvation, why would the Father have wasted His Son? If righteousness or salvation can be had apart from Christ, then Christ died needlessly. Christ, friend, is the only way to salvation because He is the only name, the only character that was perfectly God and perfectly man that offers a sufficient sacrifice for sin so that we, through faith, might be reconciled back to God. Therefore, He alone, Christ alone, is able to reconcile man back to God since He was the perfect God-man. Which explains the point of this passage, doesn't it? That Christ alone is worthy of exaltation since He alone accomplished salvation to everyone that believes. Now, we have a little bit of work to do here, don't we? There are a lot of people in our day that bristle at the thought of there only being one name among men by which every man must be saved. It's more popular nowadays to say that there are many paths to the top of the mountain of salvation. We're told that it's narrow-minded. We're told uh, that this is not the way to think. It's arrogant to say otherwise that there's only one way. People will say that there is a Christian path that leads to the top of the mountain of salvation. There's also the Buddhist path or the Muslim path or the Jewish path. There's the spiritual but not religious path. There's the good person path. There's the at least they weren't Hitler path that leads up to the top of the mountain, right? There's all kinds of paths. There's not just one path, Nathan. So we're told. So which is it? Which is it? Are there many paths or is there one path to the top of the mountain of salvation? As we're seeing here. So listen, if we are going to take this passage that we're looking at right here as truth, then we only have one option. One conclusion. Either Jesus Christ is the Lord, as it says there in the passage, or He's not. It can't be both. It can't be both. If Christ was God in the flesh, the unique Son of God that was sent to accomplish salvation for sinners, given the name that is above every name, and all peoples everywhere are going to bow down to Him in worship, then we are left with no other option. As C.S. Lewis says so well, either Christ is the Lord or He's something else, like a liar or a lunatic. Well, you might hear that and say, well, Nathan, that's what you think because you were raised in America. Better yet, raised in the South. Right? You're just saying that because that's all you've ever known. You wouldn't be saying that if you grew up somewhere else, like in India. You'd be saying something different. Well, friend, my experience, my personal experience makes no difference. None. Just like yours doesn't. If I grew up in Anniston, Alabama, or Beijing, China, or somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in India, it would make no difference as to whether or not this is true. No difference at all. It doesn't matter where anyone grows up. It only matters whether or not it is true. Our experience, friend, does not dictate truth. Either Jesus Christ deserves all of our worship to the glory of the Father, or He doesn't. It can't be both ways. 
Well, you say, another might say, well, Nathan, how can you talk about humility and then say that, that Christ is the only way? Isn't it arrogant to say Christ is the only way? My friend, it's no more arrogant to say that there is one way to God than there is in thinking that there is one way to think about all the ways to God. Everyone is exclusive in their thinking about God. Everyone is. One person might say that, there are, that all religions are paths to God. Another might say the Muslim way is a path to God or a Jewish way to pass to God. And still others might say that there's no God at all. But the reality is all of those ways are equally exclusive in their thinking. Christianity, friend, is unique in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. But it is not unique in the understanding that there's one way to know God. Everybody is exclusive in their way of thinking. Well, you might say, well, Nathan, what makes you so sure that you got it right? That's fair. I'm I'm wrong a lot. Ask my wife. Honest question, though, friend, if you're asking that. Have you ever taken the time to read the Bible for yourself and see who Jesus is? Just taken the time to just open up and read it and study it and think about it. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever, instead of just repeating the phrases that we hear on TV and from our friends or just watching YouTube clips that kind of defend the kind of position we're already in, have you ever taken the time to just read the Bible? Figure it out. Listen to it. Listen, if you'd like to do that and just see what the Bible says about Jesus, what Jesus says about Jesus, if you'd like to do that, listen, I'd love to meet with you and just work through the Scriptures together if I could. And if I can't do it, then I I know that we have more than a bevy of folks here that would love to just open up the Bible and read it with you. If you don't own a Bible, there's one right outside on those tables. Just grab one on the way home and read it for yourself. Let me make a suggestion for you. Start in the book of Mark or or in the book of John. One of those two. Good good suggestions. You're going to hear Christ talk a lot and you're going to see his mission really clearly. And I think what you'll find is if you do that, if you actually read the scriptures for yourself, study it, and get some other people around you, I think what you're going to find is the stuff that I'm saying here are the same things that are being written in the scriptures. Now the reality is, friend, you may decide whether or not to humble yourself under those truths or not. But I think, again, what you'll see is what I'm saying here is consistent with what Christians have always believed, which... Which, which must be either true or not true. That Jesus Christ is highly exalted to the glory of God the Father, the only way to salvation, the one worthy to receive worship of the entire created order. And here's the thing. If I'm right, or forget about me, if this, just the plain reading of this text is right, and Jesus Christ should receive the worship of everything in creation because God the Father has declared it, then it stands to reason, friend, it stands to reason Jesus Christ would be worth giving your time to. You may not bow the knee and worship to Christ as Lord today, but friend, Scripture promises us that a day is going to come when all people everywhere will recognize Christ for who He is. All people, everyone, will, will bow the knee because they see Him for who He is. Some will do so willingly, Scripture says, but many will unwillingly bow their knee insistence of their own way. So my prayer for you, friend, is that you would bow the knee willingly out of love for Him, but offer His life up to you, a sinner, to reconcile you back to Himself that you might know Him and delight in Him forever. That's my hope for you. That's my prayer for you. I hope that you'll take the time to consider that. I I pray, friend, that the day of Christ's return will not be a day that you live to dread, 
But it's a day that you hope for and look forward to and welcome. My hope is that you'll give your life to Christ today if you've not given your life to Christ. That you'll turn from your sin, that you'll trust in the sufficiency of Christ's work for salvation and His resurrection on the third day. And I want you to know if you decide to do that, this is not an easy path, the Christian path as it were. It's not an easy path. The good life is not this sort of catering to you where life will be sort of easy for the rest of your path. Matter of fact, Jesus promises entirely the opposite, as we'll see in just a moment. But I've been on this path for some 22 years, and there's no other path where I'd rather be on. And I mess up a lot. I stumble and get off that path more than I ought. But it's the forgiveness and the grace and the love of Christ that gets me back on and carries me home to Christ. And that's where we're trying to go as Christians. That's where we will go as Christians. Home to Christ. The one that we have trusted and see as our great reward. And so what we have here in these verses, friends, in verses 9 to 11, what we have in these verses is the curtain of heaven peeled back for us all to see with complete clarity. No matter what people may think of Jesus, the reality is God the Father has exalted Him, given Him the name that is above every name. A name that every person should and one day will bow down to. But the reality is, right, we don't oftentimes see that today. See, when we walk around, it appears as though maybe Caesar is Lord or some other God is Lord. It sometimes doesn't seem as though Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether we get bad news or maybe we watch the news, it often seems as though there's another Lord. Or worse than, all, worse than that, there is no God and life is just chaos. But friend, that's why we need the Scriptures. That's why we need the Word of God to remind us what is true so that our lives would be ordered by what our earthly eyes see in the Word. And they're not ordered by what our earthly eyes see outside of the Word or what our earthly hearts feel outside of the Word. We need to come to see, Christian. We need to come to see as the Lord sees. That's why the Scriptures are so good for us. They're such a good gift because they tell us how things actually are. The way things are ordered is by an all-authoritative King of glory, Christ the Lord. He said Himself in Matthew 28 that He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It has been given to Him. And here in this passage, we see that the Father has exalted Him and every knee should bow and confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so this text peels back the curtain and lets us see things as they actually are. See, we find in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man, we, we look on the outward appearance But the Lord looks on the heart. He sees deeper than us. He looks on the inside. He sees things deeper. He sees more than we see. See, we see clouds, right? And the Lord sees those clouds, but He sees beyond those clouds to the galaxies beyond them. We see dolphins coming up over the waterline in the ocean. And God the Father sees those dolphins, but He sees all the beauty of the animals down in the deeps, and he rejoices. He sees all of this. We see things like a man hanging on a cross between two criminals, bloody, apparently defeated. And the Father sees. He sees victory being accomplished in the person of Christ. We see a man defeated, as it were, in a tomb with a stone rolled over the top, dead, He sees what? 
the risen Lord. See, friend, as God sees. Do not see as man sees. What God sees right now. Let's ask that question. What does God the Father see right now when we're talking right now? What does he see in this moment? We can imagine him in this moment looking over his right hand. And what does he see? His seated son. Risen and ascended and glorified. Sitting at his right hand. He sees every creature in creation bowing the knee in homage to this victorious son. He sees every tongue confessing Christ is Lord. And so that's what we have to see. So we have to see, friends. Once you learn to see that way, you will know the fullness of joy. Friend, you were made for these verses, verses 9 to 11. You were made for these verses. You were made to bow the knee to Christ as Lord. And the more that you live inside of that, the more that you will have the mind, the attitude of Christ, the more that you will come to know the completion of joy. That dying to self, living to Christ, that's the good life. But here's the thing. And this is important. You can't miss this. This is critical. Here's the thing. Paul's whole point in this passage, we've got to keep it inside its context. His whole point in this passage is to call us to Christ-like humility that leads to the unity in the church, to the glory of God the Father. Humility, friends, in other words, demands emptying of self, taking the form of a servant, dying to yourself, yes, even being willing to die, so radically to yourself and obedient to God that you'll even suffer excruciating loss if it means that God gets glorified. That's the path to pleasure. See, that's where Paul Doherty's version of the good life and Jesus' version of the good life completely diverge. Doherty's version is all about personal uh, entertainment by efficiency, and Jesus' version of the good life is all about corporate joy by the inefficiency of humility. Beloved, we are people of the cross. We are not the people of convenience. We are the people that give, not the people that are always receiving. We are the people that sacrifice. We are not the people that are always being serviced. We are Jesus' people. Jesus' people. And Jesus achieved exaltation by crucifixion. And the sooner that we all get that, the sooner we will stop being a people that are so frustrated, so fearful, so bored, or so angry. And I say that because, guys, in the past few weeks, I've felt a lot of that. Sometimes... Sometimes I was right to feel that way. Sometimes I wasn't. When did we as Christians lose this idea that it is so basic to the Gospel? This idea that Paul lays out for us so clearly right here. That the way up is the way down. To be low is to be high. When did we lose the basic teaching of Christ that taught us to lose your life is the way to gain it? To be first is to be last. To take up your cross and follow me. Yes, even hate father, mother, brother, sister, even your own life, he said, and follow me. When did we lose sight of the fact that the Christian life is a life of rejection by the world as we attempt to serve the world in love and humility? When did we start viewing Christ in the life he calls us to, to be more like the masters instead of like Golgotha? 
See, somewhere along the way, friends, somewhere along the way, we started seeing Christ in His church like Comcast cable, just existing to service our needs as customers. That's not the gospel. That's not the good life. It's not joy. But we know better, don't we? We know this, Christians, don't we? We know this. There's one group of people on planet Earth, by grace, there's one group of people on planet Earth that knows what love is. One. There's one group of people on planet Earth, by grace, that knows what love is, and that's us. According to 1 John 4, 7-10, go back and read it this afternoon. We're the one set of people, we're the only ones that can see that pain, toil, striving, mocking, ridicule, defeat in the eyes of the world, that's the way to life. We're the only ones that know that and see that and have been given eyes to see it by grace. And so why do we forget that so much? Why do I forget that so much? Restoration Church, the reality is there are hundreds of thousands of people that live in our city that have never understood the gospel. They don't see Christ as Lord, but one day they will. Are we going to let fear and ill recruit be the reason we don't tell them? Be the reason we don't serve them in love and kindness? Paul is telling us here that if we are going to be a church that completes joy and is of the same love and of one mind, we've got to have the mind of Christ. That is, we have to give up whatever privileges we have so that others can know who Christ really is and enjoy Him to the glory of God the Father. At the most, guys, I've got about 30, 40 years left on this planet. At the most. I might die today. But at the most, I've got about 30, 40 years left on this planet. And I can tell you one thing. I'm not going to try to grip my knuckles and make it to 65 and go sit on the beach and play golf. I'm not going to live my life that way. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. We're learning in this passage, Christ is exalted. And by the power of His Spirit, by His grace, nothing that I have done on my own, He illumined the eyes of my heart to see that reality. I'm one of the few that has, He's, he's worked on that way towards me. And one day, one day, I'm going to get to see the physical reality of the glory of Christ with my physical eyes. Oh, let that day come soon. But until then, I want to be about my Father's business. I want more and more people to worship Christ for who He is because He's worth it. He's a good Savior. He's a good King. But for that to happen, I'm going to have to humble myself and give myself to others. I'm going to have to give my time. I'm going to have to give my talents. I'm going to have to give my treasures to Christ and His people. And I can tell you guys, every single time I've done that, I've never regretted it. Take a look down there at verses 14 to 15 of chapter 2. This is where Paul's going to go in light of this truth of Christ's exaltation. That's where he's going to go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Note those next words. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
Don't you love that? Notice that passage is not conditional. He says, you shine. He's writing to the church. You shine. If Christ is in you, you shine. You shine. Amidst a world of darkness where the one group of people that know that personal entertainment by efficiency is not the good life. We are the one group of people as Christians that know that true love is always inefficient. Because we are the one people that know because we see that so clearly in the cross of Christ. We've given eyes to see that. And so maybe you're asking, as a Christian this morning, you're asking, how do I get there, Nathan? How do I get there? How can I get to see the exalted Christ? Be humble. Serve others. Be united. And know the completion of joy. How do I get there? I'm not there, but I want to get there. Simple answer. You worship your way there. You worship your way there. You got to take a plane to get to Russia. You got to take the metro maybe to go down to DuPont Circle. Maybe your feet are going to take you home today. But the way that you get to humility for the sake of unity that leads to glory and worshiping the risen Christ, the way you do that is by worshiping Christ. The way that you are going to get to where you need to go is by worshiping or exalting Christ to the glory of God the Father. You are, friend, in other words, what you worship. You are what you worship. And we as Christians worship the exalted Christ. You do that. You worship Christ to the glory of God the Father. You will be humbled and directed towards everlasting joy. It's like this great package deal. You just look at Christ and you worship Him and humility begins to cultivate in your soul and this desire to push out and serve others in that love and that humility will begin to formulate in your heart and mind. You worship your way there. That's exactly where Paul took the Philippians in this passage. Did you notice that? See, he peels back the curtain of heaven, reveal the reality of the way things are, the way things should be, the way one day they will be, and the totality of creation bowing the knee in worship of the risen and exalted Christ to the praise and glory of the Father. Christ is glory, and now we worship Christ the Lord as our lives and of this world. The reality is, friend, wherever you Wherever you are today, you worshiped your way there. So how do you get out if it's in a bad spot or not a healthy spot? Well, you worship your way out. Worship the risen Christ. That's what we see happening. Every knee bowing, worshiping the exalted Christ as Lord. So the more that we do this, the more that we worship the exalted Christ and our hearts are humble, the more we strive to lay our hearts down in the presence of the exalted Christ, the more they will be humbled and the more that we will then live on mission. The more that they will be unified, the church in Philippi and the church here in Washington, D.C., the more they will be unified as a force of the gospel that strives side by side for the faith of the gospel. Christ defeated the power of sin and death on the cross, and he rose victoriously to defeat death. Amen? And not only did he rise, friend, he ascended and he was and is exalted and his name is above every name. And so bow, friends, bow, bow and worship to him. Be changed, move out, make disciples that are changed by his love. Listen to this. Own the inefficient love. Own, own the inefficient love of the gospel by making your life inefficient so that others might more efficiently have access to the exalted king of glory. Make your life inefficient so that others may efficiently find the love of Christ. 
and they would then worship Him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember it is God who works in you, Christian, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is the good life. May we walk in it. Let's pray. Ask Him for help. Father, we are glad to know that Christ has come, that He humbled Himself to the point of a servant, that He tasted death, even death on a cross. And we see in the resurrection the exaltation of the Son. And we rejoice that a day is coming when the whole world will see it for what it is. Forgive us for the times that we don't bow the knee And thank you for the forgiveness that allows us still with a pathway into eternity. May we worship Christ. He is king and he is a good king. And he has granted, as he said, Father, we're so thankful for those words of your son that told us, I speak these things so that in me you may have life and have it to the full. He is the good shepherd. May we follow our shepherd home and bring others with us. We love you. And thank you that you first loved us. We exalt you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.